Hello, my name is Pew Mpia, editor of Business Day Wanted. Welcome to our conversation with the artist Ati Patra Khuga. Khuga lives and works in the Eastern Cape, where he explores various media as he, and I quote, engages with myth-making as a tool to interrogate post-apartheid South Africa and critique the idea of the Rainbow Nation as a fictive nation-building tool. We spoke to him on the eve of the 2024 Investec Cape Town Art Fair about collecting, mentorship, freedom, and being an artist in a time of war. Welcome, Ati. Good to have you. Thank you very much, Wanted. It is a pleasure to be here. So we were just talking about being in Cape Town, uh, you know, in for the, I think for the first time this year, and you used to live in Cape Town for many years, and now you are a resident of the wonderful Hogs Back. How's it like in the Eastern Cape? How's it like being back? Well, to be back in the Eastern Cape is for me literally to be back home. Um, yeah, it's also like we're speaking now when we're speaking about Cape Town because I lived in Cape Town for 12 years and coming back, I'm seeing it with different eyes. So having left the Eastern Cape uh, in a rush at 17 and of course visiting every um, December and June and staying there has been very interesting in how, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a different way of viewing it. But I don't think that if I had stayed on from 17 up until 39, um, that view would have been the same. So I'm grateful for the world for giving me some interesting visions to go back to the Eastern Cape with. And talking about drawing from the world, I mean, I, I the, the, the know that towards the end of last year, you, you exhibited in Chicago uh, a show called Looking for the One. I think it, it started in October, if I'm not mistaken, until December, which was a solo show. And then there is now a... The current show, I think it finishes on the 25th of February in Zurich, Melancholia. I'm interested in how those, you know, the, the work that you submitted for those two exhibitions dovetail or differ with each other, as well as what you what is currently on show at Sala, and also then the additional stuff that you've interpreted specifically for this time. So I think for me, being like, uh, those who have seen the work will see that it, it crosses so many media that um, I like the idea of it crossing many media because it can cross many boundaries. Um, at Sala, we have photography and video. Um, when we were showing our solo at the Iceberg Project in Chicago, we were showing paintings, pastel paintings and also oil paintings and, and, and tapestry. Fiber art is also another um, thing that I'm in charge of. And then for Zurich, it's a tapestry work. So yeah, different, different, different places, different media. And sometimes for like for me in the beginning, I, I, I pushed myself to work throughout media because I do believe that work should be accessible or the message should be accessible in, in every way, ranging from social media to digital work, which is the easiest to send to public performance when people are not able to uh, uh, pay for ticket prices or anything like that to just give them a performance in an urban scenography. So um, for me, that is how I relate to media. I always say that there's something very, very um, frenetic, you know, in my studio because I change my mind and I go with where my heart takes me or rather where my discipline is peaked because I do believe that it's all a result of a highly disciplined existence to be able to work with many disciplines. 
said discipline many times. So it's the idea that decides which medium you go for. Yes, sometimes that does happen. Um, with tapestry, what has been like for the past 15 years, um, actually 20 years I've been doing tapestries. And um, with that one, it was driven by the idea of taking um, a, a technique that is usually reserved for highly domestic uh, environments and be able to use that privateness of the domestic area to talk about things that we do not talk about, let's say, across the, 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 the dinner table. So it's taking the private to the public. Um, and also at the same time, stained glass, which is also going to be a very a big uh, component in, in, in um, uh, uh, the site's um, um, gala. Um, with there, it's literally then using the phenomenon of light to bring ideas of those who probably would be outside of an ecclesiastic setting like a church or a public venue, but by making the image of those people and all, let's say, uh, Black, queer, and femme, and using the phenomenon of light, they're able to wash over people. And I've seen the therapeutic um, effects of that, that color therapy that happens to people, but very much um, an understanding that I'm being iconoclastic with these two media as well. Oil painting is um, at the moment a discipline that I'm working on because um, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a thing that um, I don't go into quite a lot, although of course I did, um, I'm quite proficient at it. Um, and oil painting for me has given me such freedom, freedom that um, the techniques of stained glass and, and, and tapestry do not really um, uh, give me because they're such um, technical works. And then I try and be iconoclastic where I get an opportunity. But with painting from the get-go, my imagination, and there's an immediacy to it, of course, from my imagination to a piece of paper, canvas, I'm able to then also communicate ideas quicker than I would with embroidering, finely embroidering a tapestry or, or cutting glass and those mistakes that happen within it. And I, I suppose that those choices also take a, a certain amount of confidence. You know, do you go into each medium um, with the same kind of confidence or are, are there others that you, you know, you're more comfortable with? And when you explore other mediums, then it necessarily challenges you a bit more? That chase the discipline and the challenge, the challenge that needs me to be disciplined. Um, I do get bored when I've mastered something, and that happens very seldom because I, I put such high standards and goals and stakes um, uh, in the creation of the work. It's a very interesting time in the world, and when we were chatting in December, um, we were talking about a lot of things, but one of the things we talked about was being an artist in this time, in this time of, you know, mm. great violence and slaughter in the world. And, you know, artists necessarily um, have to immerse themselves in, in these discussions. Mm. And I'm, I'm curious for you, over the last, say, four, five, six months, what that has looked like for you, being an artist, navigating that, in your work? What are the things that have been coming up for you? Well, it's, I think that for as long as I've been alive, of course, there's always been a war. Um, we are going to be commemorating um, 30 years of Rwanda, um, I believe in April, or um, 
we are going to be commemorating the Rwandan genocide um, as it happened in 1994, I was 10. So it's one of the first images I ever saw growing up as well in the shadow of um, a concentrated space or being pushed to a corner of a world. For example, growing up in the trans guy and the cis guy. I think, and also seeing what one can do with democracy. I'm always fascinated with what we're gonna do with all this freedom. And I think that that is what keeps on inspiring me in my art, not to test the boundaries of freedom, but to celebrate the fact that through it all people, people, yeah, people still create, they still love, they still pray, you know? Um, I'm not gonna say October the 7th, um, it, like wasn't a shock to me. I knew much about um, the Palestinian occupation, um, yeah, from 70 years ago up until now. I'm lucky to have been in a school system that did touch upon it in relationship to apartheid. So that knowledge has always been there. Um, when it hit, I was in studio. Um, and yeah, I was shook. I started painting because yeah, that, that, that's what happens when you, when you experience or see shock and awe, you know? Or rather for me, I went to a safe place whereby I wanted to just paint frenetically and see what comes out of there. And you, as you said earlier, artists have to feel to be able to give an audience something that they can chew on or something that is advisory to how we're supposed to be living our lives with, our, with all this freedom. Um, my voice is shaking as I'm speaking this because um, we've seen many people's freedoms really, really, especially in the artist community. We've seen people being challenged by those who do not want such freedoms to exist, um, who do not want artists to do their job, which is to speak at what a humanist existence is. And that also just added a second blow to the heart, something, it, it was truly heartbreak. It's a, it's a real raw emotion and heartbreak is all I've been feeling. And that heartbreak, when vocalized a couple of times for me, has been pushed back upon. And also I need to say the artist community that loves freedom. Um, the artist, which forms the artist community, as I said before, feels and has to channel that through their work in media to be able to show the world that they're not alone, you know, or they're like the person who's viewing the art and seeing the art is not alone. And if the person speaks against something unheard of, like a genocide, and then is pushed back upon, it's not the artist, it's probably about the person who's pirouetting around a genocide, who's doing backflips and pirouettes. Because what we do is that the information is in us, we feel it and we have to go make the art. Mm. Art without protest, and, and, and that's also just another worry that I probably have. I worry for the radical artistic tradition of South Africa, which has been an inspiration and influence to me going into the art world, but for future generations. 
if the if if we do have these pushbacks, doxing some people have been crazy emails, some people have been sent, I've been sent some DMs by people who I really thought were the cleverest on earth. And I think that that has been revealed through this. I've spoken to a lot of people who are artists and creators who, you know, who've, who've had the same sentiment about their eyes being opened to people who they thought were thought differently about the world. And now it's very clear that they see the world in a very different way. And what that means to community, what that means well, for community, what that means for friendship, what that means for love, what that means for tolerance. I think that, yeah, there's, there's, the soothing and consoling is not happening. Um, much of the community, of course, I feel that at the moment, we're speaking a week before, sort of like the art week begins, it's going to be tense. And I think these conversations will be had, um, whether it is on the convention center floor or in panel discussions or just in the air, you know. But for me, the heartbreak comes in the people who, who, who have been revealed to, be, to, be, to, to, to not really be down for freedom. Mm. Um, and of course, it goes into asking a very important question, which I've been asking myself, and I think that probably the collector base needs to ask itself. Why do you collect? You know? Of course, there's many reasons why you, you do collect. You know, you do collecting to decorate your beautiful home. You're collecting to, um, to bear witness to the world. You're collecting to have the art make you know about certain corners and feelings and individuals in this world. So, yeah, I think that we need to, we need to all ask, why do people collect? You know, mm -hmm. um, I, I collect so that I can bear witness to the world um, and also at the same time leave the work to bear witness to the times that I've been living in and also to learn from various people how they're overcoming, how I could overcome. So it's a, it's a, personal, it's a personal journey. So asking myself also that question, why do I connect? Is yeah, it's not a, it's not a difficult, controversial, or whatever question. It's a, it's a, it's at the it's at the basis of why we do things. You know, and I'm still finding words very very tough for um, the environment that we're living in at the moment because it's also happening. As much as it is happening, we, there's also much white noise and silence. Mm. You know, that is creating a static. Yeah, a static that. I hope does not boil over into something that could take us away from loving freedom. We've spoken about collecting and the importance of who collects you and what also what the artist or what certain artists need to be able to concede in order to be collected by people that they would like or people rather that they feel um, will uphold the integrity of the work uh, and will kind of extend its effect on the world as opposed to being collected by people who collect for completely different reasons. Um, I'd like you to speak a little bit more about your thoughts on who collects your work and why they do it. You know, I've been very lucky to, um, to have been collected by people who have such a 
an intelligence and collect my work because A, they would like to see how I will be making in response to this lifetime. It's been long relationships, you know? Um, and those that I am, am personally loving, because also there's a, the, the whole strata of what client is what. There's one that you've never seen, but there's probably a handful that you've had the closest relationships, you know, growing up with friends and yeah, all over the world, the collectors are. And I'm so proud of them for keeping at, yeah, not the ones that I've lost for my vocalization, but I am so proud of those. And it's probably 98% um, who are seeing this as an opportunity to encourage artists as well to create for freedom. You know, um, it's people who really, really are interested in growing up with me. That is what excites me. Those are the people who excite me about when it comes to collectors. Um, I do love those who would love to match the wall with my work. It's so colorful, it can match any home. Um, but I'm interested in those who will also be part of my learning. The rest, um, I'm sure there's other people who will satisfy them. Thinking about the next generation of people that are going to collect your work, you know, you think about black collectors, for example, as a, and I, and I know we're not a monolith in any way, but let's, you know, for the sake of this conversation, let's talk about black collectors as a, as a collective, if you will. And, you know, having observed from a professional point of view, the, the industry, if you will, for the last few years, there've been a lot of efforts to get black collectors into collecting. Um, we, you know, we, we've, we, you've got um, Mandla Sbeko, who's doing the BMW Collectors Co. Um, efforts done by people like Colisa Thomas and a whole lot of other psyches. Mm -hmm. When we chatted about this, uh, you, th there was still a sense that there was something missing. And I asked you what you thought that thing was. And I'd like you to tell the audience what that thing is. I'm, like, I've been around for like, I don't know, it's two decades this year. I'm edging to two decades of making and selling art. And I remember for the first decade, I did not have any black collectors. Um, and that also broke my heart. But you know the thing that we, or not we, but it's like, wait, wait it out. It will happen. And then we enter the tens or the teens, 20 teens. And there was this beautiful flourish, accessibility to black code collectors and them being visible. And then I started sort of like seeing my works being collected by, 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 by black collectors or collectors of, yeah, indigenous collectors. Um, it has been beautiful conversations because for me, it's like coming home again, you know, this growing number of the black collector and black collectors that collect. It's, it, it will create a sense whereby the things that we really, 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 of course, an artist should have courage to speak, but it could work that there is, there will not be much backlash when we're actually stating certain things, but we haven't tested those bounds yet. It's still very much an object art. And I really would like to 
I always think of going beyond, and I think that I've asked the question, I've posed the question as to why people collect, and I'm sure people speak about that, you know, why they collect, because it is a beautiful experience. But for me, as a Black collector, once again, I know my why, and it is to live and experience how these people, like how the, the artists that I do collect experience their freedom, deal with how they're going to cure many generational things. And those, those two things out of many that I've mentioned right now are things that not only branding people as collectors, but an audience, a black audience can actually, is actually very, very, yeah, attached to because I am speaking of the black experience and it's and and I think that for me making artists shouting and someone saying I hear you you know and I think that of course by mere effect of the black experience the black collector is closer heart-wise to the work and I want to protect that I want to honor that the the additional thing we spoke about was around cost, right? So you're, you know, you were looking at or saying that part of what you as an artist, and perhaps maybe these are my words, you know, all artists or black artists as such need to think about is thinking about black collectors differently as far as price point is concerned, given, you know, the very real um economic, uh, our real economic history, which is really tied to our political mm. history. Um, so discounts, for example, being a, a key discussion, and I would say maybe payment plans and all of those things, um, which which yeah. happens anyway. But I think perhaps what would need to happen is for that kind of thing to happen more intentionally, perhaps? Yeah. I think that the art, like at the moment, and I can't speak about the magical world of art marketing, of course, but for me, I think that there should be more of a seduction. There needs to be a powerful, intensive, and intentional push to court the black collector. And then that also comes, of course, with much that is given. That also comes with our collectors maybe spreading out and not only focusing on the on the metropolis, mm. you know, Cape Town, Durban, so whatever, whatever, Johannesburg. But um, I think, I think for me, going into the spaces, especially the spaces where the, the, the stories come from, you can throw a rock at an art fair, and you'll hit someone who's either from the east, like the TBVC states. Mm. Those are stories that, and those former TBVC states are places where actually we should be looking at for new artists. As you know, I've got a mentorship program that prepares artists for um, the next level in their works as well. It's called Bodyland and it's based in um, Hogsback. And, and for me, I think that me answering this question is in honor of the fact that I now live back home and I'm able to make quite a good living as an artist, um, that I can see how we can be planted. And I hate the fact that um, our stories like somehow um, there's a brain drain in the Eastern Cape, you know, and there's a brain drain that sort of like leads to these metropolises being uh, fabulous, but that's where convenience is. But I think that after the catastrophe of 2020, the catastrophe of um, last year's October sessions, we are going to find that people are going to be looking for newer voices and actually going regionalist. 
I know that artists um, are also going regionist in the fact that they're going back home or they're going to rural areas or finding the places whereby the story is, 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 is best um, spoken of. I don't know if I'm making sense with that one. It, it reminds me of a conversation I had with um, Andile Galvan, and we were we were talking about as as you know you know this is part and parcel of his practice going back to his roots in you know in in many ways in through his work but also physically going back to his village and paying homage and sharing that work with the people from the village and giving them an insight into themselves that they've never that you know looking at allowing them to look at themselves in a different way, to look at themselves yeah. in, in a way that that has global appreciation at the highest level. I mean, and for me, that is phenomenal. And th- the, the question that would come from that for me, um, it, in talking about your residency as well, is, you know, how, how that has gone in terms of these young people that you you mentor, you bring up to, to Hogsback and you spend time with and you, you know, you, you mentor them through this process. How how has that gone? And, you know, do you see tangible change? Yes, it may be in skill levels, you know, prior to the residency and um, post the residency, but also in what you were talking about, in thinking about themselves in a bigger way, thinking about what the stories that they have to tell, thinking about those stories as stories that are valid and that the world wants to hear. Bodyland with the eight mentees who I'm still mentoring um, up until today. Um, and that's the beautiful thing about mentorship. It goes, it goes for life, you know. Um, they've gone on to do some really, really cool things, international residencies, um, exhibiting in art fairs, doing solo exhibitions, banding together for other co- with other collectives to be able to spread the idea of the body land method, you know, that I'm, I'm now working on. Um, yeah, I don't know how to explain mentorship, but of course there's freedom, but I love discipline. I think I'm a bit of a, a disciplinarian, and I think that that is usually the place whereby really there's potential for one to grow. And I've, I'm really proud of everyone. So, yeah, we're always looking to do a new one. We've got one guy at the moment, Tumisa. He lives um, um, in the valley. Uh, he studied painting here in Cape Town. And then he decided also to go back to the Kuma Valley. So it's going to be it's beautiful, the conversations that we are having about revisiting land and how we can actually maybe one day make it a, I don't know, a phenomenon um, that, that that is nationwide. You've meant you you mentioned uh, Lovedale, uh, Lovedale Press, which I know is a project that you embarked upon uh, a while ago, and maybe if you can give us uh, a background to that, uh, maybe you know um, listeners know what the project is about. First of all, uh, well, what Lovedale Press is um, for those who don't know, but also how far you have come in your quest to uh, preserve and, and allow it to thrive once again? Lovedale Press is a culmination of basically, it's a, it's a college, it's a printing press, right? In 1823, December in 1823, so that's like shortly, like 100 years or 200 years, um, the first Kosa words, so Kosa, the, 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 the Kosa uh, 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 language, language moved from drawn to, 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 to printed in this December 1823. 
And um, yeah, so oral drawn and then it becomes a textual work. And discovering it uh, like a couple of years ago, of course I grew up reading the Sikosa Lovedale um, uh, uh, press books, whether it's Invo Zabansundu or the fiction or the radical works that were happening there, the radical feminist works that have been happening there for over a hundred years. Um, it, it was just a, a pity to not be in a I was in a position to be able to to go to Lovedale and be like, what can we do as people who live in these big metropolises? And um, we started a fundraiser that basically during COVID times would help, COVID and afterwards would help keep the doors open and the lights on. The doors are still open because of these fundraisers that we've been doing at Backer Buddy. And also at the same time, um, we're releasing another one in a couple of weeks, but we took the books that could not be transported out of Alice or out of um, Lovedale Press and started putting them in shops. And we're always looking for new bookshops that can be able to stock them as a way of somehow resuscitating that flow or the marketing and the flow and having them in people's imaginations again. Um, Yeah. And then Bodyland is sort of like also informed by wanting to work with the Eastern Cape, you know, artistically, because we are carrying on a tradition, of course it's, it's text, but we're continuing a tradition of sorts of, 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 of having these conversations, whether it is in Isikosa or English or, or, or modern, you know? Well, time has flown by um, and I've got time for just one more question. What can we expect from you at the art fair and what will come after that say in the next six months you know what are you what are you working on what can we look forward to so of course i'm only like i always think of my garden i'm obsessed with my garden so as you were asking him about future plans i was imagining how my iris my iris bulbs are growing how my um distica bulbs are growing but of course <laughs> that is not what you're asking so our presence this week is quite, is, we are going to be quite present. So people will be able to look at the Sala show, um, which I'm part of until I believe the end of this year or next year. Um, I just need to confirm that. Um, and then from then onwards, we will be represented by What If The World Gallery in, um, at the Investec Cape Town Art Fair. Um, so we'll be present uh, at the gallery on Baton Street and also present on the floor um, at the convention center where the art fair takes place. And then there's going to be the museum. So I kind of have Cape Town by the stranglehold <laughs> for this month. Um, and then future-wise, I go back, of course, to my Hogsback studio to work on, I believe we have a show in Hamburg later on in the year. This is Hamburg, Germany, not Hamburg, Eastern Cape. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one day I'll have a solo show in Hamburg, Eastern Cape, yes. Um, my mother's from Hamburg, actually. Maybe I should use her home as an exhibition space. That's oh. an idea. Um, but yeah, it's Hamburg, Germany, whereby I'll be showing, I think it's the Kunsthalle, it's the Hamburger Bahnhof, Kunsthalle. So yeah, and then back to studio again, where I'll be working on two, no, there's three museum shows next year and uh, one museum show happening uh, at the Leslie Lawman um, uh, Gain Lesbian Museum in New York. 
and I'm really, really looking forward to that one. And then I believe we have we'll circle back with another solo show in Cape Town, which I haven't done since 2017. No, since COVID. <laughs> since 2020, that's um, the last solo show that I did in Cape Town. So it's time to come back with these new stories that I've been working on for the past yeah, five years, which is basically the cycle of a solo show. Yeah. Amazing. Um, we look forward to seeing all of that. And thank yeah. you so much for, for joining us and being our our guinea pig, our inaugural interviewee on this podcast. Thank you, everyone, for having me. Thank you, Wanted. Thank you, Spiewer. Thank you for listening. I'm Spiewer Pierre. For more, head on over to IONO FM, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.